Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today is uniquely blessed with intellectual curiosity, erudition, and an insightful wit. He's also been called one of the greatest thinkers and wordsmiths of our age, and is rumored to read up to four books a day. He's also a true New Yorker's New Yorker, the brilliant Adam Gopnik. Gopnik has been a writer at the New Yorker for over three decades, first as an art critic and then as their Paris correspondent. He's written fiction, nonfiction, humor, memoir, and criticism for the famed magazine, covering everything from sports to spirituality with equal aplomb. He's the international best-selling author of 10 books and an accomplished lecturer and storyteller. He has appeared regularly on the Moth Radio Hour, the CBC, and created a series of one-man shows including The Gates, an evening of stories with Adam Gopnik. For someone with such a prolific and varied body of work, I was curious to learn about his writing process. I write in the kind of the back room. We think of it as the engine room of the Titanic, right? Where Daddy is stripped to the waist, shoveling coal into the furnace while to keep the boat going for another day. We hit the iceberg long ago and we're listing, but we're going to keep moving forward. And I always have my door open. The kids always know seven days a week, six hours a day. You do. Yes. And they were always aware of Did someone of that. teach you that? Did someone yes. lend you that? Yeah, actually, someone did teach me that. I had a great teacher, an inspiring teacher, who I wrote an essay about called Last of the Metrozoids when he died uh, tragically and stupidly young of cancer. His name was Kirk Varnado, and he ended his life as the uh, director of painting and sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art, but he had been my professor in graduate school, and he was someone of uh, impeccable talent, the greatest lecturer I've ever heard, an inspired curator. But he had a work ethic like no one I've ever known, which he had derived, as he would tell you himself and did tell you often, from playing football and coaching football. That had been his passion in college. Played defensive line, though he was wildly undersized. Then had gone out to Stanford and couldn't decide whether to uh, continue coaching for Bill Walsh, who was at Stanford at that Mm -hmm. period, or to become an art historian. And he said to me a memorable line. He said, the thing about being a football coach is you have to be 
uh, smart enough to do it well and dumb enough to think it matters. <laughs> my father was a football coach. <laughs> was he really? Yeah. My father coached high school. Well, he played at yeah. SU, and then he went to, uh, he caught high school football where we grew up. And, uh, and my memories of that mentality, there was a sign above the entrance to the coach's office as you walked out the door, and the sign said, if you score, you may win. If they never score, you will never lose. <laughs> and in bolder letters, it said, defense wins championships. <laughs> well, that was very much, though Kirk was the most sophisticated of intellectuals, he was at heart a football coach. And when I arrived in graduate school in New York in 1980, I was something of a wise guy. I grew up in an academic family, but in a very contentious smart, win-the-argument-at-the-dinner-table kind of family. So, what did your dad do? My dad was a professor. No, no, no when, you, when you left Philadelphia, how old were you when you went to Montreal? I was uh, 11 when we left Philadelphia, and then I and then grew, spent the next nine years in Montreal, really kind of grew up in Montreal. Because he got a job at McGill. Exactly, and my mother, too. My mother was a, a professor, too, and actually, I should add, a, in many ways, a more distinguished uh, scientist and scholar than my dad was. My dad spent a lot of time as a dean and was extremely good at it. My mom is famous in her field for having discovered the first identifiable chromosome linked to grammar, linked to language, which is called if I used to know it by heart, right. H-O-F-X-P. Another thing you forgot. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Two P's. Anyway, so I came, uh, I came of age very much in that kind of uh, Jewish intellectual family with elements of the Glass family of Salinger and of the Corleone family of Mario Puzo. But leaving at 11, I wonder, I mean, I always identify that period, 11, 12, 13, as a huge uh, transitional well, period in yeah, childhood. It was very was sensitive it of you to you? say that. It was hugely tough, hugely tough, yeah. because I had just sort of begun for the first time to have a circle of friends, and we smoked, uh, we couldn't get marijuana, we smoked marigold cigarettes and all that. It was hugely tough moving to a, a strange city, and uh, it took me a, quite a while to adjust. As in Philadelphia, where I spent my childhood, really, I had actually been a kid actor, and I had been the kind of the Jackie Coogan of Andre Gregory's avant-garde theater. You know, Andre Gregory is still, to this day, a very dear friend, my oldest friend in the world, and he had an avant-garde theater in Philadelphia. I know Nick. Years. Oh, do you really? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. well, I'm that was that, yeah. that family. And so I had played countless parts for Andre, and as I say, we're still uh, intimate friends. And so I'd had a very uh, incandescent, in some ways, a blessed childhood. So that transition was extremely extremely difficult for me. And you went undergrad to McGill. I went undergrad to McGill. Yeah. I've got many friends, because McGill's such a great school, I've got many friends whose children have gone there. And my neighbor in my first home in Amagansett was Skip Sheldon, Huntington Sheldon, who was on the medical staff there, or the hospital staff there. He was a medical doctor who also, I think his family, him or his mother's family, were heirs to the Merck drug fortune. Right. Yeah. And he was my guy. And, and, and McGill's such a great school. When you were there growing up, was it a fait accompli you were going to go to McGill? Yes, there was no... There was no question. It was the it was the family tavern, really. Not only as I tell my kids, in fact, they ended up because I got a discount because my both my parents were professors, and then I I, I did that. well and I got various fellowships. They ended up paying me to go to college, yeah. so which was in the, in this day is unusual. My friend Malcolm Gladwell, who's also a Canadian of the same generation, points out accurately that that's the Canadian model that you go to the nearest good school to your home, and the whole insane American rigmarole, which we have gone through, as I'm sure you have gone through and will go through, of college visits and the insane competitive overdrive that takes place is essentially unknown in Canada. My nieces and nephews live in Edmonton, and they went to the University of Alberta, which is a terrific school and is nearby. But yeah, I went to McGill. And Fine arts there and at NYU? Art history. Yeah, art history. I did art history. I did art history because I was torn between doing psychology 
and art history. My older sister, uh, with whom I'm extremely close intellectually, did psychology and is a psychologist to this day. But I have four sisters, I should add. You're one of how many? Six. I'm one of six. So that's a positive science, right? Yeah, I'm hopeful. One of six. I had, this is a whole other subject, but we, I had an extraordinary childhood, which I hope to write about in my next book after this one. Right. But I had uh, seen an incredibly pretty girl going into the art history department, and I thought, that looks interesting. More, more interesting than psychology, which tended to, to right. attract What's she know, studying? It, what is she studying? And I found out, and I followed her in, and 42 years later, we're still married. So that worked out all right. But it was also nice because I was talking, I was, you know how it is when you're that age, you're agonized about everything. Everything is in agony. And I said to my psychology advisor, what should I do? Should I do art history or psychology? It seemed hugely important at the time. And he said, is this a difficult decision? And I said, yes. And he said, then it's unimportant. He said, all difficult decisions in life are unimportant. Because if they're difficult, that means there's a lot to be said on both sides. So you can't really take a wrong turn. My wife has a degree in art history from NYU. Mm -hmm. And when I said to her at one point, why that? In a menu of things you might have said, I said, why that? And she goes, well, it's because it's the history of the world. It's the history of of humanity. History of humanity and and it has this magical element, and that is that you look at still fixed pictures, at things that don't move, that don't dramatize, that don't have, you know, uh, special effects (laughs) attached to them. And suddenly they seem to sum up uh, a period, an epoch, uh, uh, a mood, a meaning. You understand the Italian Renaissance better by looking at a Leonardo than you do by reading six volumes on the period. So I, I loved it and still do. I came to New York with, with as I've written about in my book, uh, At the Stranger's Gate. We got on a bus leaving Montreal like kids out of a 1940s musical and came to New York. The, the building where we are right now, where writing was where Martha had her first job. She was a film editor at mm-hmm. that time, studying to be a film editor, was, was actually a film editor. She was with, eventually she was with the Maisels, but she had trained with her parents who were founding uh, filmmakers for the National Film Board of Canada. I don't know if that means anything in America now, but it was the great documentary. You know, people who are in documentary film are familiar. And this was her first job, and it is a sign of how different New York is now and then, that this building on 9th Avenue and 45th Street was so isolated that I would come, I would take her down on the subway in the morning and pick her up again at night because they routinely found dead bodies in the dumpster. And there was truly, on this block where now there's a, you have your choice between a great French, a great restaurant of the south of France and a fine bistro from Alsace, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. So when you leave and you come to New York, what motivated that decision? Why did you want to come to go to graduate school at NYU and not remain in Canada or go somewhere else? Because I... There's a period of your life where you're fairly peripatetic. Yes, absolutely. Because we had fallen in love with New York. I had fallen crazy. Was she a New Yorker? Oh, no, no. She was an Icelandic girl from Montreal. She was not, couldn't have been more uh, Canadian right. in background and temperament is to this day. But we had been to New York, and we had fallen crazy in love with it the way you do or, or people have done historically. And even I, then. E- even then. The tail end of the then. 70s. Even the tail end of the 70s. Yeah. And, and my, you know, my folks thought we were a little bit crazy because it was the tail end of the 70s, and New York was still taxi driver really? New York, you know, with steam coming out of the manholes mm-hmm. and psychos driving the, uh, mm-hmm. the cabs. But we had fallen crazy in love with it, and I, as I am to this day, it's not, that's an emotion that's never changed for me. And it seemed like a time of possibility. You know, when you're 20 years old, you don't, it's hard to keep anybody away from anything. My father came with me when we got on the bus going down to Manhattan, 
And he said to me, you know, I, it's like, you know, D'Artagnan's father in The Three Musketeers sees him off from Gascony, if you remember, and says, mm-hmm. when you get to Paris, fight duels with everyone you meet, which he then does and becomes a musketeer. My father said to me when I was getting on the bus, he said, when you get to New York, remember, never underestimate the other person's insecurity. And those turned out to be the wisest words anyone has ever given me. And every mistake I've made subsequently was because I underestimated someone else's insecurity. And every time I've had an an empathetic insight into a, a situation professionally or, or personally. It's because I remembered that. I met my uncle, my father's youngest brother, who was a bit of a, for lack of a better way of putting it, was kind of a Kerouacian figure. Like a really, On the road. Very yeah. bohemian yeah. and very, never had a job. And Dharma bum. Lived off of his Korean War pension and, you know, a very strange guy. But super bright, super intellectual guy, re- you know, reading books constantly. He said, remember one thing. He said, even if you really are one in a million, there's seven other people like you in this city. <laughs> So you can form a little club with them, <laughs> yes. and you can hang out with your like-minded people. Absolutely, you make a you make a cohort instantly. And New York, I might add, though it was the tail end of the seventies, there was st- it was still in some ways a more, if I may, attractive city than, than it is now, because exactly because there was so much that was decrepit and there was so much that was despairing. There were these wonderful little islands of light and poetry and music. When we first came uh, to New York, we used to go and hear the great jazz pianist Ellis Larkins play at the Carnegie Tavern, which was this little bar right behind Carnegie Hall. And there was this amazing jazz poet who just played eight sets a night for the price. We weren't even, we didn't even know enough to drink in those days. For the price of a Perrier, you could be in this cool, dark room where this genius was, this Art Tatum uh, level pianist was playing for free, reflectively, with melancholy elegance night after night. That was part of the the magic of New York in that period. Before Uber and so forth, mid to late 80s, I would get into a cab, only cabs or the subway. Back then, I would say to the driver, how's the driving business? Mm-hmm. I would strike up a yeah. conversation with them. And uh, the one guy, this, I think he was Russian, he said to me, he said, New York is not the same anymore. He says, all the artists are gone. He said, because of the rent is so high. He said, all the artists are leaving the city. He said, now it's only these bankers who get up in the morning and go running along the reservoir, then go downtown and try to kill each other. <laughs> you know, and I remember there was, a, it was, I felt much more romantic about New York in the yes, 70s. Yes, I, I, I think now. that's true. And the only um, antidote I have to it, I mean, we were lucky enough to come of age in a rat-infested loft in Soho at a time when Soho was still an art village, and you would wake up in the morning and you would see Richard Serra walking along Prince Street, scowling as he envisioned another monstrous wall of Corten steel, or uh, Donald Judd, the great minimalist, uh, was still occupying his house, which is now a little museum. So you had a sense of those very specific energies of art. I remember there was even a couple who were literally manacled together for a year as a conceptual art exercise, and you would see them going up and down West Broadway in a state of total bliss and equanimity. And so we were lucky enough to see that last frontier. And it's true that one of the tragedies of New York in my lifetime is is that those frontiers of Bohemia that had persisted since the Civil War, really, have vanished. And yet when I say that, Alec, I recognize the limitations of my own vision because for my kids, didn't experience it that way. They experienced Bed-Stuy and they experienced Mm -hmm. Williamsburg and they experienced 
uh, Brooklyn, you know, was one of the great the transformations, yeah. Yeah, yeah, of our time. You know, I, I'm sure you've read, because it's the favorite book of all of us who love the theater, uh, Moss Hart's Act One, mm-hmm. which is a story about the subway, basically. It's about getting on the subway in Brooklyn and being brought into the wonders of Manhattan. And generations of imaginative New York pilgrims made that trip from the Bronx or Brooklyn into town. And then suddenly it was like the suction on a vacuum. It suddenly turned the other way around, right? And everyone was departing Manhattan for Brooklyn and the Bronx. I remember my son Luke said to me at one point, very seriously, he said, Dad, he said, you know, I know you like this neighborhood, the Upper East Side, which, you know, I had mortgaged every atom of carbon in my body in order to provide for them as an abode. He said, but you know, the food is so much better in Williamsburg. He said, I really want you to come out with me. Oh, my generation, I, I, I joke. I said, oh my God, Brooklyn was where you would go to buy like serious hardcore drugs or yeah. a gun. Yes. But there's two things when I look at your uh, your facts and so forth and your CV that stand out to me that I'm always kind of fascinated by. One is expatriatism and you go live in Paris for yes. five years. Now, was that the only long-term stay you had outside the United States? That was the one and only? That was the one and only. I mean, we've gone, you know, like everybody. We've visited London, and we've been kind of, you know, regular habitués of Paris since, but that was the only extended time we spent. You know, what was it like for you to, like, I'm I'm assuming, was the Paris idea your idea? Someone sent you because you were were commissioned because you were going to write these journals, if you will? No. Do you keep journals? It was our idea. Martha and I had fallen in love with Paris and with the idea of Paris. I guess we're sort of constantly <laughs> disloyal. I was fall in love with New York and fall in love with Paris and go on. And we're going to cheat on New York. Paris yeah, is exactly, number one on the exactly, list. Yeah. exactly. That was our that was our lover. New York, New York is our our spouse and yes. and Paris our mistress. Someone wrote a book with that title, by the way. Paris was our mistress. But in any case, we had fallen in love with it. And when our son Luke was born in 1994, we knew that if we didn't go now, then we would be entrapped, if not entombed, by New York necessities. Mm-hmm. Preschool was calling kids dictating. Many yeah, things, exactly. Yeah. And so we decided to do it. And I uh, threw my cap over the wall. You know that beautiful story of Frank O'Connor's. You know when they so growing up as a poor Irish kid in Cork. And whenever they came to a wall that was too high to scale, all the little Irish boys threw their caps over the wall. Because once your cap was on the other side of the wall, you had no choice but to find a way Mm -hmm. over. You couldn't go home without your cap. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that's a lovely image Mm -hmm. of the key moments we have in life. So threw my cap over the wall, said to the wonderful Tina Brown, who was then the editor of The New Yorker, listen, I really, really want to go to Paris. And bless her, she said, all right, go, go to Paris. Write to us from Right for us from Paris. And so we off off we went. And it was, I, I don't think I had this fully formed as a thought, but it was some kind of intuition. I knew Paris would be a more interesting place to write about than London, be, exactly because it threatened to become a bit of a backwater. You know, it was a time, I loved the 90s. I thought the 90s were great. They, they were as good as, the 1990s were as good as the 1890s in lots of ways. But there was this encircling girdle of American life and American influence, which you felt very strongly in London in those days. It was kind of triumphant Anglo-Saxism. And France and Paris were the last place to resist that. So you were actually witnessing the alternative, like the little Gaulish village in the Asterix comics. This was the last place where it was going on. So I knew it would be a more interesting place to write about because losers, so to speak, are always more interesting to write about than winners. And and we settled in, and those were five... Uh, Amazing years. They were also, you know, there's a moment, I think, in every... What were the years again? From uh, 1995 till 2001, 2000. really. Right. Came home to 9-11. Also, I we're think in, to in every 
writer's life, and this may be true of every artist's life. I think it is true of every artist's life. There's a moment when you sort of know you've hit it, when you find your voice, you find your stance, and you sort of know, even if you don't like me, you have to admit that this is good. And I felt that way writing in Paris for the first time. I'd been writing for a decade for The New Yorker already, but I sort of knew when I wrote my first piece, I said, oh, this voice is mine. This voice is appealing. There's something about the way I can write here with a certain kind of ride attachment, but also with a certain kind of lyrical enthusiasm. I felt, I knew that it was working. And there's just, there's no feeling as good in a writer's life as that moment when you, when you know inside there's a, literally a kind of physical vibration, a hum when you sit down to your typewriter or computer, when you feel that. And I felt that so strongly in Paris. Author Adam Gopnik. If you're enjoying insights into the inner workings of The New Yorker, listen to my conversation with an author formerly at the helm of the publication, editor-in-chief extraordinaire, Tina Brown. Well, I think I'm a compulsive reporter, actually. I mean, I have what I think of as observation greed, right? Most of the time, I'm propelled to go out, not because... I actually want to go out, but I think I got to see that. I, you know, I need to see that. So curious. I'm curious. I'm really curious, and I have a, a, a great desire to report on the action. Hear the rest of my conversation with Tina Brown in our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, Adam Gopnik shares the secret to a perfect marriage. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. 
There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Writer Adam Gopnik and his family spent five years living in France. In his time there, he composed the Paris Journal for The New Yorker magazine, as well as a collection of essays, the New York Times best-selling Paris to the Moon. I was curious why he decided to leave the City of Lights after what seemed to be such a charmed and eventful time there. That was our decision as well. Martha, we had just had our new baby, Olivia, and which was sort of the the climactic, the culminating episode in what I knew would be the uh, a book that I'd organized. And Martha said to me, you know, in New York, we have a full life but an unbeautiful existence. And in Paris, we have a beautiful existence but not a full life. Mm-hmm. And we had to make that choice. It's a choice I've often regretted, frankly, Alec. And I still love Paris deeply and have thought of it. But it our son Luke was about to start serious school. And he had been to preschool and kindergarten and first grade in Paris. And I love France and I love French culture, but the worst side of French culture is French education. It's brutal. It's very effective. And, you know, the kids emerge being able to recite Racine and give you the square root of 60 in a way. Kids in our schools. They you know, know Pythagoras. Yes, exactly. You know, you don't necessarily, but it's a hard life. You know, you're there from 8 in the morning till 4 in, in the afternoon. A good thing about it is that French kids tend to be sensitive in a way that American kids are often spoiled because they're aware from a very early age that existence is unappeasable. Authority is, uh, is unappeasable. We don't teach our kids that authority is unappeasable until it smacks them on the side of the head when they're 19 or 20 and they start working or join the army or whatever. I often think, uh, Luke, my, my wonderful son, who's a philosopher now, on his first day at school, went in New York, and I came home and said, well, how was it? And he said, Dad, the teachers are too nice. And I said, what do you mean the teachers? He says, everything you do, they say, is good. He said, I drew a picture of myself. It wasn't good, Dad. The nose was too big and the ears were wrong. And they said, it's wonderful. We're going to put it right <laughs> up on the wall. Picasso, and, hello. Yes, and I yeah. said, what would they have said in Paris? He said, oh, in Paris, they would have said, it's nothing, it's, it's, it's nothing. And he spotted instantly the profound insincerity of American education, the, the superficiality of the encouragement that we often give to kids. It's unearned, you know, it just is, you've done it, so it's good. I find that for me, I mean, I'm 64 years old, and I got remarried, and I have six children. The oldest is eight. I have I have six children, eight, six, five, three, about to be four, 
one and a half and one because the, the the sixth one is a surrogate. And my wife is pregnant again with our oh seventh goodness. child. So like and, I have a, and I have an older daughter, so who's twenty seven this year? She's twenty seven. But my point is, is that you know, in school with them now, the thing that we're navigating, not in some overwhelming way or some you know, it's it's sporadic, is this me two times up thing where, where yeah. people's behavior, which is like you know, innocent boys will be boys, and people say offhanded things as, as kids to shock each other. Now it's like people are. They're marched down to an office, and a report is filled out and filed, that's, and you, you know, know they're, 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 it's like a zero tolerance, zero tolerance for, for some humanity. of the aspects yes. of, ty- of childhood. Yes, I mean. yeah, that, you know, I, I we didn't experience that directly because our kids kind of just missed it right. when we were in college by by that time. But I certainly, and it's the subject of the book I'm working on. I'm trying to finish for tomorrow, literally for tomorrow, right now. Is that American life is attuned to achievement pass the next test, get into the next grade, get into the right college. And there's something very empty about that hamster wheel of achievement that we put kids on. And your kids are where now? They're how old? And they're, are they uh, beyond Luke's, college? Uh, Luke, no, they're both still university. Uh, Luke is uh, 26, and he's getting his PhD in philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. And Olivia is um, 21, and she's five years younger to the day, which tells you something. They're the same birthday? Yeah, the same birthday. Oh, and, and, they, and she's at Harvard. She's in her third year at Harvard. What's she studying? She switched. She was in government originally. You know, they, they only have really one subject at Harvard that they teach, world domination. Right? <laughs> and, and so she switched from the government side of world domination to the history side of world domination. Well, now, uh, I'm told by friends who know you and, and know a bit about you, they, they told me that you have the perfect marriage. Well, you know, I hope that's true. We have been married for a very long time. And have been through every twist and turn that life can offer from migration to New York at the age of 20 on a bus to children, raising children, watching children leave home, which is a a big one. And through it all, we've been remarkably uh, harmonious and happy. I give Martha all the credit in the world for that. It's not I'm the, the difficult, jumpy, moody one. And she's a woman of incredible equanimity and insight and generosity of spirit. She's the caregiver to the kids, to the dog, to me, and she's an extraordinary woman. So I feel that that's, you know, the most profound blessing in my life, certainly. In your writing career, where you go from GQ onto The New Yorker, was writing, I mean, you're making these observations about art to fantastic schools, uh, and you go on to do it at the graduate level. And is the soul of the writer always there? And you're writing during your college career? Or when do you, so you become the guy that gets hired by the GQ magazine? I never wanted to be anything else but a writer from the age of 10. I can, I can locate it to a particular moment. I, first of all, I was a crazy reader as a kid. I loved to read. I read the Thurber Carnival, literally, until <laughs> the pages came off in my hands in bed when I was six and seven. But at the age of 10... I wanted to go see a spy movie, a very bad spy movie, a Man from Uncle movie. And my parents had said, yes, you could go on Saturday. Then on Friday, the way parents will, as I'm sure you do, as I have done, I said, oh, no, it's not going to work because we have to do this. And I was so hurt and indignant. I went back to my room and I wrote a 10-page letter of protest, which I slipped under their door. And my dad, sweet, good man that he is and was, came and said, oh, I didn't realize you felt this strongly about it. You really have expressed yourself here. Of course you can go. And I said, oh, that's interesting. You can put words down on paper in ways that change the inner 
workings of someone else's mind. Mm -hmm. And I felt the enormous power (laughs) that was implicit and inherent in that activity. I never wanted to be anything but a writer. And though I did do art history, and I was blessed, as I said at at, at the beginning of our conversation, to have worked with a genuinely inspired and great teacher, I never really wanted to do art history. Art history was just an excuse. I mean, I never wanted to do it professionally. It was an excuse for getting to New York and being able to tell my parents I was going to study, not to walk the streets and try and sell my songs, which was the reality of what well, I We're going to get to music right, in a minute, right. but in, in the world of magazines and that publishing world, I grew up, and you talk about reading as a child, I devoured everything from when I was 10 to 12 years old. I was reading The Godfather when I was, you know, 10 years old or whatever. And and, and my point is, is that GQ, you know, the Nick Pileggi era New York magazine, when Felker was running New York, all the, 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 the that bygone era, I, I mean, I feel like magazines were very, very different, obviously, then. Oh, magazines were the hard of American culture in in that period, even when I, I mean, they had been since the 1920s at least, and they still were in the 1980s. And, you know, Condé Nast was a kind of temple. It was a strange, mysterious Oz run by the remote figure of Cy Newhouse with all of these glamorous magazines. Everyone had a car. So when I went to work, I, you know, I just wanted a job. I really just wanted a job that involved putting words on paper and seeing them in print. I would have taken any job uh, that there was, and I was lucky enough to get a job as the, at first, the fashion copy editor of GQ magazine. That was my first grown-up job. And that meant, you know, fashion copy are the little blocks of type that appear next to clothes in fashion magazines, Mm -hmm. you know, where they have little kind of alliterative tags, they're called, you know, summer shirts. And then there's like a 10-line description of of the summer shirts. And my job was to edit and rewrite those things. And I thought I was at the heart of show business, Alec. I thought it was the right. greatest job anybody <laughs> had ever given. And as I tell in At the Stranger's Gate, I came up with a two-line, an alliterative tag, two-word alliterative tag, so potent, it was simply chiaroscuro chic for a group of glowing linen shirts, chiaroscuro chic, that they promoted me on yeah. the strength of those they two words to become the grooming editor. And and then I was responsible for all of the copy about lotions and moisturizers and, and shampoos, except for fragrances, which was all special thing, because basically those magazines depend on fragrances. It was fragrance. another floor. Yes, it was another floor and an, another thing. And I, the thing I can't convey adequately is I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I never thought for a moment, why am I wasting my talent splitting words and hairs and coming up you with— You gave it a go. I, not only did I give it a go, but I felt—and it's, it's very difficult to recreate this time for our kids. You know, now you write something and you post it online and a million people can see it, right? Mm-hmm. At that period, it was sort of—I said to my kids, it was though there were like 200 computers in all of New York, and you wanted to get your hands on one of them. Mm-hmm. And it kind of didn't matter which one you got your hands on, the Village Voice or the Soho News. Obviously, not to be disingenuous, the the golden machine was the New Yorker, and that's very much where I wanted to go and where I I dreamt of going. But— I was just delighted to be in this business of turning words on paper into words in print. It just filled me with joy. And so I, I had, uh, I had terrific, uh, a terrific couple of years doing that. And the, my kids are still astounded because on a couple of occasions, I crept into a fashion story. It's a haircut story once. It's how I met the wonderful photographer Brigitte Lacombe. She came and did, did my portrait. I know Brigitte. And that wonderful French woman. It gets more French with every succeeding year that she's in America. And uh, she came and did my picture. And the kids having a, a glimpse of that moment of improbable glamour are still impressed. M- Martha, actually, who had modeled in, in Canada and was an extraordinarily beautiful uh, woman, still is, I had a whole story about her in Mademoiselle. 
and the kids still think that this is, you know, just unreal. This is not your parents. This is two other people. What other magazines do you think are holding their own in the world today? Oh, it's a, it's a good question. I read the New York Review of Books, which mm-hmm. I think is still a, a thriving enterprise. I th- read specific people a lot, and that's one of the things that, for good or ill, that the digital era has done is disaggregated magazines a lot. So I read John Chait in the in New York, for instance. Not that I don't read New York Magazine, but I read that specifically. Or I read uh, David Frum in the Atlantic, and not mm-hmm. to the exclusion of other the Atlantic, uh, <laughs> right? Not to the Harper's, exclusion of other people. There's a couple of them cherry picking. Yeah, it's you know it comes more naturally that you you're online and you're you see that someone's tweeted something interesting. I try and read our magazine, The New Yorker, uh, of course. But I, I do think we've done a pretty good job of staying, I hate the word relevant, I hope we've done a good job of staying irrelevant in the sense that I, that you, when you open the magazine, I would hope that you don't know what you're going to read about and that the basic gambit of The New Yorker has always been, well, it was I mean, not unlike when I was in Paris, is you, you say, Paris, I'm not interested in Paris. Why should I be interested in Paris? What's this guy doing? Oh, this is kind of interesting. This is kind of funny. Okay, I'll stick with this. No, nowhere in your wheelhouse uh, do you see a place, or did you ever contemplate a place for film? Oh, no I film always contemplated you, a place or? for film, and that. And Martha, my wife, is a filmmaker, yes. and, and all of that. And like every, and she's still doing that. Oh, totally. Yes, indeed. She's she's uh, producing and and writing screenplays now, gone on from editing. So it's very much a presence in our house, and has been for forty some years. I've tried my hand a couple of times at screenplays, and never really you know, never quite felt at home doing that. I've collaborated with her, and I think we've done some nice things. But I, I never really—I love movies. I, You know, in my life—in fact, I will be honest with you, you know, I would have been delighted to have my life taken a slightly different turn, and that had been a bigger part of it. I, lo- I love movies. I truly love the theater. And so writing for the theater is at the center of my my feelings and something I've, I've been able to do. But— um, there was a fun, if I can tell a funny story, that was a moment because all, you know, like every writer, your stuff gets optioned for the movies and then bought for the movies and then the script is developed and so on. And there was a moment in our history when I had written a story called um, Bumping into Charlie Ravioli about my daughter Olivia's uh, imaginary friend, which had become uh, well known and anthologized. And um, a studio wanted to option it for a movie. And then they looked into the contract and discovered that Harvey Weinstein had bought outright Paris the Moon for another movie, and he had bought the characters in that book in perpetuity mm. <laughs> and the leading characters. So since the leading characters in that book were me and our son Luke, we w- couldn't be in the movie of Charlie Ravioli. So there was a moment, how's this for a 21st century moment, when half of our family was owned by Miramax and the other half were owned by Sony Pictures, right? And they would have had to negotiate mm-hmm. like the Gopnik cinematic universe right. to have us all in, in one movie. But no, I've never, I've never written a movie. I, I was telling my producers that in my lifetime there were two names that would vex me because I was around super sophisticated people who would pronounce their names differently. They called him Richard Avedon. Yes. <laughs> Brits would call him Richard Avedon. And I yes. thought, well, that's not how I learned it. And a woman I worked with who was a very famous, an internationally famous model, pronounced the designer's name Balanchega. <laughs> but to describe to me you being, I guess, adopted by Avedon. <laughs> Dick Avedon was, with Kirk Varnado, the great influence on my life. And when I think about everything that I wear, eat, look at is very much still under the, his influence in, and spiritual aegis. He was an extraordinary man, obviously a great photographer, but also a man, an incandescent force in the world, a man of limitless energy and, and mischief and fun, but also a very serious artist. And one of the things that he wanted to 
implant in me, and as I say, he really adopted Martha and me as, as kind of surrogate kids, was that it was possible to live a very rich and good and, and pleasure-enhanced life, pleasure-affirming life, and at the same time be a serious artist. Author Adam Gopnik. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Adam Gopnik tells us the most audacious thing he's ever written. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. From art criticism to children's literature to food writing, no genre is off-limits for Adam Gopnik. Recently, he expanded his resume even further into musical theater as a book writer and lyricist. When I first came to New York, it was to be a songwriter. I had a cassette of my songs, and I had written the college show, which was based on the life of Vladimir Tatlin, the Russian constructivist architect. And I assumed I was three weeks from Broadway. When are we going to get our hands on that on that uh, musical so score? So I, I actually have promised um, our friends Marcy Heisler and Zena Goodrich that I would do one of the songs from the show at one of their 
54 Below evenings. So that was my ambition, and I I wasn't able to push it forward. I was going to be uh, Stephen Sondheim, not not John Updike. Haven't become either one, but I've you know. But I, my other ambition was to be an essayist for the New Yorker, so that did work out. And then it had always been very much part of my life, caring passionately about the musical theater and writing songs for all occasions and writing lyrics. And then um, the great uh, American composer David Shire approached me about writing a musical with him. I didn't know it at the time, but he had said to his wonderful wife, Didi Khan, why don't guys like this ever want to write for the musical theater? And Didi had said to him, well, you don't know, maybe he does. And she approached me at a theatrical thing and said, would you be interested in writing a show with my husband, David Shire? And I said, I can't imagine anything in the world I would rather do. Mm. So David and I got to work, and we wrote a show together called Our Table. We wrote more than 60 songs, I mean, complete, finished piano-vocal songs, uh, about a little restaurant struggling to survive in New York. And Melissa Errico came in to play the lead, uh, the, the female lead. In a workshop. In a workshop. And I was astounded by her gifts, because I my stuff is literary, and it involves a lot of complicated puns and ambivalent emotions. She's a bright woman. Uh, she's a super bright woman. And she was, it was like in a fairy tale, she was the first musical theater performer in addition to be very beautiful and having an unbelievably, a voice like a Mozart flute, as someone once said. She understood everything that I was writing and could deliver all of those bittersweet, ambivalent, complex emotions. So we did a full production of it, which unfortunately she couldn't be in out in New Haven. Like every musical goes to try out and often die. And it's still the thing I'm proudest of. We have a very good live concert recording of it that we did at 54 Below with Melissa singing the lead along with Andy Taylor and Constantine Maroulis. Is that available? Yes, it is on Spotify with a beautiful cover by Brigitte Lacombe, actually. Brigitte did us a, a wonderful cover image. Go on Spotify, Our Table, uh, Adam Gopnik, Melissa Errico. So we did that, and then Melissa and I enjoyed working together enormously. So I started writing all kinds of specialty material for her. David and I wrote a song, which I uh, love, called Cry for Joy. That's kind of a theme song for her swing show. Wrote a lot of parodies. And then she's just done a beautiful album of uh, film noir-inspired music. But no more musicals for you. Oh, no. On the contrary, I was just about to say, on the contrary, it's occupying an ever-larger part of my life. I have two new shows underway, one with Andrew Lippa, who wrote The Addams Family and The Wild Party. And David Shire and I have are in the middle, about one act in, to a new show for Melissa called Troubadour right now about the invention of the love song at the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine wow. in, the, in the 13th century. As I say, I love the theater. Nothing in life. There's a song in our table called It's Never Raining in Seattle, which of all the countless things I've done, political books and family memoirs and, and so on, is the single thing I'm probably proudest of because it's a song about the necessity of lying to your children. The situation in the in the show is that the father, the chef, has been telling his beloved daughter, who was very much modeled on my Olivia, for years that they have an offer in Seattle, but we never move to Seattle because it rains all the time in Seattle. You have to wring the customers out like sponges before you seat them. Never going to Seattle. It rains all the time. And finally, they have to go to Seattle because they lose the restaurant. And then he, she says to him, you know, it rains all the time in Seattle. And then he sings this song, It's Never Raining in Seattle. And for me, that's what we do with our children. You know, we have to, there's never been a song about how we have to lie to our children sometimes to reassure them of the, of the salubriousness of the world. That's the thing I'm proudest of. What are you working on now? I'm just, fin- I mean, literally finishing four to send to my publisher tomorrow a book called tentatively The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. And it's, it's about the business of of learning to master things, particularly in middle age. You know, I learned to drive when I was in my 50s, got my driver's license only in my 50s. I think I am the only New Yorker ever to get 
to pass his driver's test on the same day as his son. Luke was 20 and I was 55 and we took our test on on the same day. I learned to draw in the last few years, learned to write music and all of those things. So it's all of these essays about learning to do things. But it's not a collection of essays. It's a book about the arc of doing things. It ends... I think, I hope, affectingly. It includes a chapter that is the, I won't even try to describe, that is probably the most audacious thing I've ever written and deeply embarrassing in some ways, but essential. And then it ends with, I've been taking boxing lessons for the last uh, year. Why? Because I just am fascinated by mastery, something that's so alien to Mm -hmm. a little Jewish intellectual like me as boxing, being able to enter into it and learning the great perpetual lesson of all accomplishment, which is that you break it down into small parts, you learn the small parts, the little segments, and then over time, miraculously, the little segments become a seamless whole, and you find, oh my God, I'm actually throwing a sequence of punches. So I'm simultaneously was taking boxing lessons and, and doing ballroom dancing with my daughter, Olivia. And so the last chapter is just about the ways in which the steps of your feet in ballroom dancing and the jabs of your hand in boxing complement each other and it's the you know the perpetual cycle the other thing that fascinates me alec is the way that when you're being trained to box you're always made to be aware of the invisible opponent the invisible enemy right because everything you do is in response to this person who you never actually see and you never do they're always out in the hall exactly and i find that a very powerful metaphor for life generally right we construct ourselves in the eyes of an invisible other Thank you so much. Just delighted to be here. My thanks to writer Adam Gopnik. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.